Hello, it's 30th of September 2018, and this is episode 79 of Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. Next week, Scavengers Horde is actually coming up for its two year anniversary. Can you believe that, Kirsty? Um, not really, because if I think about how many hours that means we've been talking about Star Wars for, <laughs> we probably have like, a bit of a problem. Yeah, like, especially if you imagine all the hours that we cut out of the shows. Yeah. It's not like you can measure it by the lengths of the shows that are actually published, because we talk for much longer than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, the reason to bring up our two-year anniversary is not just as some sort of self congratulatory proclamation is also because we want to bring about a few changes for the better and hopefully to just make things a bit more interesting and exciting so for a start I've basically been joking around about it for lord knows how many months but I think we're going to put an end to how has your week in stars been because it's just a bit old at this point Um, so we're going to do something a little different and that's going to be in the form of setting each other a challenge. Yeah, basically we're going to give each other homework, <laughs> which is so yeah. us. Exactly. We're very diligent um, and we always like to be tested to our limits. So it's going to be very strenuous, tough intellectual challenges that are going to be extremely difficult to achieve. To be fair, these these first few that we've brought up for ourselves they're ones that we were meaning to get around to anyway so this is just a more formal way to like motivate ourselves to read things and watch things and then discuss them together exactly i haven't actually told you about a time limit for this kirsty okay and feel free to shoot me down if this seems impossible but i was actually thinking of a time limit of two weeks for each challenge so there is some sort of time pressure on okay do we feel that's going to be feasible yeah, no, I think that works. So what we'll do is we'll go away and read what we've assigned to each other and then we'll come back and talk about it on the show, right? Yep, okay. exactly. Okay. So who wants to get their challenge first? Do you want to give me my challenge or vice versa? Yes, gladly. My challenge to Rachel is to read my favourite Star Wars book. So she's going to read Lost Stars. Can I make a little confession? Yeah. I've got a head start because I've already started reading it. Awesome. See, you're an A-plus student. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I plan to get an honours grade, (laughs) as I believe the Americans call it. (laughs) I'm telling you, the only reason I've been wanting you to read this, like, it's not just selfish, like, oh, it's my favourite book there, or I want Mm. you to. I genuinely think that you'll really enjoy it. Um, Yeah. No, and I am really enjoying it so far. It's really engaging and easy to read and interesting, and I love the characters already. So it's not going to be a difficult challenge, basically. Mm -hmm. And so my challenge to Kirsty is that there is a book, a very interesting but also very long and intimidating-looking book called The Mad Woman in the Attic by Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar. And it's a really awesome read, and my task for you, Kirsty, is you can read the whole thing if you want to. That would be amazing. And you'd actually be doing one better than me if you read the whole thing, so I haven't got for everything. But okay. the parts of this book that I want you to read are the introduction and then the chapters on Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre. I'm definitely going to be able to read that, at least. So yeah, those are up my alley anyway. So yeah. I will read those and then see how it goes from there. So, yeah, so we'll come back in a couple of weeks and discuss those. Exactly. So that will be fun. 
And yeah, the, basically the whole idea of this, it's always going to be to set each other tasks that we think the other will find entertaining and instructive. So we wouldn't set each other the task of, I don't know, going off and reading like a book about like X-Wing manufacture. You know, we wouldn't do that to each other. Or at least I hope we wouldn't. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no disrespect to anyone who wants to know about the finer mechanical points of X-Wings, but I don't think either of us would find that particularly enjoyable. Is that right, Kirsty? Yeah, that's not really our primary way of engaging with Star Wars. So, Yeah, because basically the reason I say this is that at some point I was thinking we could maybe do polls to get people to vote on what we will read. And I just want to warn people that you're not going to be able to vote for anything too horrible because we have some sense of self-preservation here, okay? Maybe horrible isn't the right word. It's just stuff that's, like, not really in our wheelhouse. Yeah, that's true. And I, it I think we struggle to come up with anything super horrible. Because, you know, like we've said many times, we're not super into the comics, but if people have recommendations for them, I won't be, like, opposed to the idea. It's just not something that I would usually go and choose to read. But I've yes. heard lots of good things about different series so we could you know get a little out of our comfort zone yeah no exactly because it shouldn't just be about reading things that we were going to read anyway it will be nice to be challenged and go out and find new pastures and just so it's clear to people the reason why i'm asking kirsty to read the mad woman in the attic or at least certain chapters of it is because it's relevant to the sort of literary analysis that we like to do of the whole Raylau thing so yeah it's not completely irrelevant to star wars basically i will make it relevant you will see yeah i I feel like the reference to like jane eyre and we've talked about the whole heathcliff thing before yes makes sense for people exactly i've already started writing a torturously long meta about it that <laughs> i'll have to finish by the time that we record the episode <laughs> where we talk about that piece of reading so yeah lots of stuff to do but it should be fun so yeah, we hope you find the prospect of challenges as engaging as we do, so we're quite excited about it. <laughs> um, right, is there anything else you want to say up to the top, Kirsty, or should we move straight into the news? Yeah, let's just get going, because there's a lot to cover this week. Yep, cool. So the first thing to talk about is that Kathleen Kennedy has renewed her Lucasfilm contract for three years. I can hear the glee in your voice. <laughs> yeah, I'm very pleased. <laughs> I literally saw it pop up on my Twitter feed and I was just like, yes, yes. I was so pleased. It was such a nice feeling. Um, So basically this story broke exclusively in The Hollywood Reporter and they wrote a very long piece about it. I won't read out the whole piece just because a lot of it is just like a summary of what's happened with Kennedy's governorship of Lucasfilm so far. And basically stuff... I imagine people will already be broadly familiar with. So the crux of it is that Kathleen Kennedy has been signed for three more years. So that takes her through to 2021. And then the new parts of the article, or at least the parts that strike me as the most new and the most interesting, are the only Star Wars film currently underway is episode nine, currently shooting in London and due for release December 20th, 2019. Sources tell The Hollywood Reporter that episode 9 will be the last of the chapter instalments, with Disney planning on touting it as the selling point in the promotion campaign for the film in the year leading up to its release. 
Lucasfilm is developing future projects from Game of Thrones creators David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, as well as a potential trilogy from Ryan Johnson, the filmmaker behind Last Jedi. Johnson, however, is currently prepping to shoot a detective thriller that is to star Daniel Craig. Sources say that the near future of Star Wars lies in television, with Kennedy-led Lucasfilm planning on expanding the universe with new characters in that medium. The shows at this stage include a live-action series run by Jon Favreau, which is currently casting, and the animated Star Wars The Clone Wars, both of which will air on Disney's untitled streaming service, which is set to launch in the second half of 2019. Meanwhile, another animated series, Star Wars Resistance, premieres this month on the Disney Channel. Um, there's some factual errors going on in terms of Resistance, because it's airing on Disney XD, is that right, Kirsty? Yeah. Yeah, and it's not airing in September, it's airing in October, but uh, well, right. it's a long piece, there's always going to be mistakes. And the streaming service does have a name now, I think it's called Disney Play. But right. other than that, they've got the gist. Yeah, exactly. It's nothing that like impedes understanding of what's going on. So yeah, anyway, with that out of the way, how do, how do you feel about this, Kirsty? I'll be honest, this really endeared itself to my petty side because immediately I was thinking of all those silly YouTube channels that have been fueling these rumours about Kathleen Kennedy being fired. I'm not sure how it started because I don't follow those videos closely for obvious Mm. reasons. Uh, I just hear about them via social media. But apparently there was a strong rumour that she was going to be fired in September for some reason. Yeah, Um, I don't know where it came from. Or how it got traction, but this obviously nips that in the bud. I I do think that September was when her prior contract was running out. But that's not how firing someone works. It wouldn't be like, oh, we're going to wait. Never mind. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's stupid. But I think that was the reasoning they were basing it on, which again emphasises that it's stupid. I'm making the mistake of trying to appeal with logic. Yeah. No, that won't work, (laughs) Kirsty. Um, yeah, no, it's quite amusing. And yeah, I, I will confess to having watched a few of the people who are the strongest proponents of the Kathleen Kennedy fired theory. And it's quite hilarious to watch because some of them, they basically indicate that people emailed them to say that Kathleen had been fired and they were pretending to be insiders. But obviously they were just full of shit and they were probably just sending these people their fan fiction, essentially about how Kathleen Kennedy's been fired when she wasn't, and they just completely fell for it. What? And sinker. That's really not... what this was based on. That is so embarrassing. I, I think it's actually what this was based on. Oh it's my really, goodness. really cringe. Wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. I know. It just makes them look utter fools, which is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't understand it. Like, I know that the, the general consensus is that Solo didn't do as well at the box office as it should have done. And obviously Mm. because they had to essentially shoot the film twice, they did not make the kind of money that they were hoping for. Yes. Um, But the other films have undeniably been hugely successful. They've already made back the $4 billion that Disney paid for Lucasfilm with those movies. So she's done pretty well. Exactly. Like, she's been hugely successful. And I think this move to keep her on is just in recognition of that. Um, I've seen some people question why she isn't being kept on for longer because her previous Lucasfilm contract was for six years. But I think in 2021, I think Kathleen Kennedy is going to be 68 years old and it's quite natural to be thinking of retirement and stuff then. So it makes sense to do it in a smaller chunk of years. And to be honest, lasting through to 2021, 
that gives her time to like consolidate what she's done so far and to really steer the ship and decide the direction of the franchise moving forward which is exciting because I have faith in her to take things in an exciting direction yeah because at that point the sequel trilogy will be done and I guess what they're working with now is the idea that that would as this says be the last of the chapters um Mm. but really I'm taking all of that with a huge grain of salt because never say never Um, yes exactly but it is for now and they will definitely market it as such because that's what you would do yeah Um, but at that point if she's there for another two years after that they can really think about what they want to do yeah exactly because yeah I think it's silly to say that episode 9 will be the last ever episodic Star Wars film because 15 years down the line that's probably going to look like quite an attractive prospect again essentially so I don't think it's going to be as absolute as that but I do think they're going to tie it up with a bow and give it a clear ending which is what it needs to be honest because the trilogy needs to resolve somehow and yeah it's going to be interesting to see how the cinematic stars universe shapes up beyond that like the stuff about the greater focus on tv is also pretty intriguing it's not a surprise because obviously we've known about the favreau tv series for a long time but like it does make sense that they'd be shifting their energies in that direction especially because of all the emphasis on the disney streaming platform and it makes sense that you'd want lots of like television style programs to put on there yeah, definitely. I mean, just look at the amount of original content that Netflix puts out. Yeah, so exactly. Disney are going to be very interested in that. Yeah, that's the buzzword, content, content, content. <laughs> right. And I'll tell you what, what I really hope is that they really do tell genuinely new stories of these TV series, and that is not relying on like re- too many wider references to existing characters and stuff. Because my fear would be something like an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. situation. Oh, I yeah. doubt you ever watched that. I haven't, but I've heard about it and it's problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I watched maybe like the first episode and you just always have this sense that it's in the shadow of the films and it is like an inferior like annex to the films because it's always like, oh yeah, Captain America was here just last week. And of course you never see these characters. <laughs> you know, they're just like name dropped as a way of like saying, look at our cohesion. Look at how much we fit into the films. When obviously that's not very convincing and you don't really buy it. So like I'd like a whole series to go by with like no references really to like, oh, Han Solo and Leia are off doing blah and stuff, you know. Obviously you can refer to some of the wider political developments and movements. But I think it's really important that it stands on its own and doesn't sit in the shadow of anything else. Yeah, I think they'll get to that point and I guess we'll see in the coming weeks probably what's going to happen with the John Favreau series more information and casting news and stuff like that um but you're right they really need to break away from that kind of thing and obviously so far with the sequel trilogy it was important that they built on what came before and the standalone movies that we've had so far have kind of fit into what came before um but I don't know I, I there's just this big discussion going on right now as to what will come of that right like Mm. there's the bob Iger interview that was last week as well where he was kind of we'll get to that but kind of conceding and realizing that he'd learned things from how solo went and everything yeah 
No, exactly, which was a promising sign because hopefully they'll learn the right lessons. But yeah, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, Yeah, so overall I'm very happy that Kennedy is staying on. I think she's shown herself to be a very effective leader and I think she is very much about like having a creative new direction for the series, which is exciting. I, I don't think she's just about nostalgia and I think that if like Kennedy and the rest of the decision makers at Disney and Lucasfilm have learned anything from the experiences they've had with making movies so far is that the new stuff tends to be the most effective stuff because it's not bogged down by people's expectations and people's attachments to the pre-existing to the pre-existing characters and stuff because that is in terms of the last jedi a big part of the freak out because people were distressed to see their hero from their youth, Luke, be depicted in that way. you know, And that's obviously a problem you don't have if you're dealing with all new characters and all new stories. So I do think we'll see more of that. Yeah. And it, we've talked uh, ad nauseum about The Last Jedi and why people were uncomfortable with what it depicted. But I think it is so important to reiterate that it's the second chapter of a story like, Luke will not be that way in the third one. He found his peace and purpose. Yeah. So, yeah. Just, people just have to be patient. Exactly. All will come out in the wash, so it'll be fine. Um, Right, have you said all we want to say about that news? I think so. I mean, at the end of the day, I hadn't heard any other suggestions that would rival Kennedy in terms of a better choice for, for leading Lucasfilm right now. I really can't yeah. think of anyone. The only person I ever saw floated was um, Dave Filoni because people mm. thought that the head of animation would make a better person. And however you feel about animation, you have to acknowledge that being the president of an entire com- company like that and a, and a producer in that capacity is very different. Yeah, you know? exactly. And it's a question of would he even want that sort of position, to be honest. Right, and I can't think of anyone outside of Lucasfilm who you know, you'd be so confident would do a better job either. I've seen people suggest Kevin Feige from Marvel, but to be honest, I really wouldn't want him going into Star Wars because, like, I- I'm not a huge Marvel fan. I-, I think they're perfectly fine movies and they're all enjoyable and fun and it's great that they exist and that they make so many people happy, but they're not really for me personally. And I think that level of intense connectivity, I don't want to see that in Star Wars, to be honest. I mean, I don't keep up with him. Has he said that he wants to leave Marvel? Like, is there a reason why that would be a thing that happened? Um, I think he's been there for a very long time. I think over 10 years now. Um, okay. So I think some people are like extrapolating that he might want to move on and do other things, which is fair enough. And he has historically said that he's a huge Star Wars fan. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there are several reasons, but there's never been, like, the remotest inkling, like, oh, yes, I'm thinking of leaving Marvel or anything like that. It's just wishful thinking on for some people, I think. Right, okay. Right, then the next thing we want to talk about isn't strictly Star Wars related, but it's kind of Star Wars adjacent because it involves Adam Driver and... Who doesn't want to talk about Adam Driver? (laughs) Come on, let's face it. Um, Basically, he was on Saturday Night Live yesterday. We were holding out for some sort of Star Wars sketch, you know, maybe like Matt the Radar Technician Part 2. That didn't happen, but there were were still some really great skits. Um, What was the highlight for you, (laughs) Kirsty? Parnassus. 
Yeah, same. <laughs> it's basically no contest. I, I like ask the question, but it's sort of a moot point because you're obviously going to say that. He was great in all of them, I thought. Um, yeah, yeah, he was. But that sketch was just exceptional. Just the commitment. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, like, just... basically, he plays this, like, insane ancient oil baron who has this teenage son and he's invited to, um, like, the school's career day and he has to explain what being an oil baron involves and he just <laughs> explains it in the most delightfully melodramatic and vengeful way imaginable. It's just brilliant. I was really impressed with how they made him look as well. Yeah, it was very impressive old man makeup. It's the sort of makeup you'd see like if you were aging someone up in a movie in the 80s. And right. I don't mean that as like a criticism, but in the sense that it does look like genuine like nostalgic old age makeup. And it's like, mm-hmm. wow, they did that super quick. Yeah. It's very impressive. So we got Baldo after all. <laughs> we did. We got Baldo OAP Kylo Ren. Like, Kirsty actually sent me this amazing mock-up someone did where they transplanted... um. <laughs> Panassus's head onto Luke <laughs> so it looks like ancient Kylo Ren in like Jedi robes you never know and we it... might get that in like 40 years oh god and it was actually sort of disturbing <laughs> it's like no I liked that one and I really liked the one where they played Fortnite as well because it reminded me <laughs> of some fan fiction AUs that we've all read that were pretty enjoyable <laughs> so people were having a lot of fun like live tweeting it you know because basically like you can refer to any of these different skits as like a different version of an au right yeah there's even a literal coffee shop one exactly so he had his little half ponytail which immediately tells you that he's playing a douche (laughs) because every adam character with a half ponytail is a douche yeah and I like that um, Adam and Cicely Strong, they, they've they sort of become the, like, SNL couple when Adam's on the show now. Yeah, because they were Aladdin and Jasmine. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so they work together really well. They're very funny. It's like an obnoxious New York couple. And then he um, was dressed up as, like, the main kid from Breakfast Club, basically, wasn't he? For that, like, party house sketch. Oh, yeah, he kind of had a Bender vibe for that. Um, yes. Yeah, that's He was barely one. in that sketch, but still. Yeah, that was the thing. There were a couple where I was like, oh, I feel like they kind of underuse Adam there. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't think it was as strong as his first appearance on SNL. But mm. I don't think that's down to him. It's just like a weird convergence of a lot of stuff going on in America right now that they had to cover in like the the news and like the cold open and everything. Yeah. Um, and Kanye. Yeah. Kanye. So... <laughs> yeah they had to give him his limelight so yeah depressing (laughs) right but yeah no overall it was a very fun show and i recommend as someone from the uk going to the snl youtube channel because then you can check out all the relevant sketches Mm -hmm. quickness and with ease so it's very good um right and then the next thing to talk about is that we have a comment from Bob Iger on the upcoming Star Wars slowdown. And this is again from The Hollywood Reporter. And this came out before the news that Kathleen Kennedy was continuing at Lucasfilm for another three years, just so people have sensed the chronology. And yeah, so basically The Hollywood Reporter interviewed Bob Iger and they asked, Many believe Disney should pump the brakes and not put out a Star Wars movie each year. 
Bob Iger. I made the timing decision, and as I look back, I think the mistake that I made, I take the blame, was a little too much, too fast. You can expect some slowdown, but that doesn't mean we're not going to make films. JJ is busy making episode 9. We have creative entities, including Game of Thrones creators David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, who are developing sagas of their own, which we haven't been specific about, and we are just at the point where we're going to start making decisions about what comes next after JJ's. But I think we're going to be a little bit more careful about volume and timing, and the buck stops here on that. Do you see this as a good move, Kirsty? Uh, yes, because plenty of fans were kind of wary of how quickly Solo was coming out after The Last Jedi in the first place, right? Mm. That was something that we were like, hey, that seems like a really short period of time to get people amped up for the next movie. Why, yeah. Like, why not wait for Christmas? Yeah. Um, and in general, they've put out a lot of movies in a really short space of time. And I get why, because they want to make money for their shareholders. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's it's interesting to you know hindsight's twenty twenty, so you can see the effect of that, and and how they kind of need to take stock from here and think about things a little bit more, which is what he's saying. Definitely. So. Yeah. So I was thinking like towards like from the middle to the end of August is basically a complete wasteland at the cinema, and I was thinking if they'd held Solo back until about then, I think it would have made so much more money because it would have basically just had the cinemas to itself. Whereas in May, it was just a stupid level of competition, especially very like similarly targeted competition. Mm. So it wasn't just a question of there being lots of movies out. It was the question of there being lots of movies out that were all targeted at similar demographics, essentially. You know, like Infinity War and Deadpool and Solo. They're all going after the same broad group. And yeah, it was a bloodbath. And I'm glad that Iger is learning from that. Yeah, I will never really understand the choice to pit it against Infinity War because that's your, you know, that's your movie too. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I can't remember where I read it, but I do remember at some point reading that, like, Kathleen Kennedy had asked Bob Iger if she could, if they could hold the movie back and put it out later in the year, potentially at Christmas, and he was like, "No, we need to release it in May and stick to that date." Hmm. And I think that's why he is at this point being so ready to admit that he's culpable for the decision right obviously he doesn't go into it in this interview but i think that another aspect of the slowdown is uh, like going back to the drawing board a bit and thinking about the types of projects they want to do going forward right because obviously we know about the obi-wan movie being put on hold and that sort of thing and i think they've realized that it's a bit like what i was saying earlier about how they can't bank on nostalgia indefinitely and is not just enough to see like an old favourite character back like there needs to be more of a hook than that mm-hmm. because Solo didn't really have that much of a hook but beyond look at your favourite characters here in another adventure you know and obviously it was even a diminished hook in that case because it's not like the same actors were playing them it was a whole new cast Like it's hard to say that I think the Star Wars storyline is going to be completely over at this point but I certainly think if we do get any more Star Wars stories, they'd be approached very differently. And I don't think they'd come out under that banner. Does that make sense? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that they're kind of thinking about diversifying the mediums as well. Like um, Charlotte and Caitlin at Skytalkers have talked a lot about how they think that Solo would have been better as a TV series. Yeah. Like, I that think makes that sense. might have worked better. Um, yeah. 
to have that kind of episodic pulpy feel not everything needs to be a blockbuster movie but yeah. because that's what people have been used to star wars being for so long they were kind of still playing on that nostalgic element well the nostalgia is kind of running out because it's been a few years since star wars was back yeah um, yeah it's not enough to do that now so definitely yeah no i think that's a really good idea actually a tv version of solo would be really good because then you could like have a few episodes like developing han and kiro when they're scrum rats and looking at that relationship and understanding their lives more and then it would have so much more like emotional impact when they're separated and you'd be like oh god when are han and kiro going to see each other again and then like the gut punch of that when it actually happens like towards the end of the season or whatever you know that sort of thing so it is a very episodic film i i was re-watching it for the sake of this episode and we'll talk about it when we get to the solo discussion later on but i was thinking wow it's really just a series of like set pieces put together like discrete adventures like used to form a narrative basically yeah exactly it could have been divided up in that way and then you could have followed the characters away from han a bit more like if yeah. you have like a subplot to it you know we could have had more of emphasis nest for example so yeah it is what it is and i like solo as a movie it's just it's interesting now to hear kind of the evolution of bob Iger actually processing that himself and taking stock because yeah. to an extent you always think well I know this isn't how a lot of people in fandom operate because you do have all these like YouTube videos and talking heads as if people like think that they know more about running a company than Bob Iger and Kathleen Kennedy do. And mm. I certainly don't think that, but it's just interesting to hear him, you know, accepting that culpability and learning from it. Because I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't see that a lot from people like just acknowledging their mistakes. And yeah, I do, I just. I generally defer to them. It's like, well, you're the one who's been working in this industry for decades. I'm just someone who likes watching movies and talking about them. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, it honestly made me respect him more. Like, because, I don't know, like, I have this, like, instinctive, like, defensiveness when it comes to, like, big corporate types. You know, you don't get bigger or more corporate than Bob Iger, essentially. Um, He's, like, the epitome of the, like, business head, essentially. And, yeah, I respect that he can say, look, I made a mistake and we're going to do things differently because I think other leaders wouldn't have admitted their own culpability in that situation. They'd have used someone else as the full guy. So, yeah, I I think that makes him a good leader in my eyes because I think it's important to be transparent about things like that. Yeah, he didn't need to say that publicly. So Yeah, definitely. Right, and then the next thing we want to talk about is that the Poe Dameron comic, which has been running for a while now, several years, has wrapped up. And yeah, it's ended on quite an intriguing note. I was wondering if you could just talk a little about how it ends and the little teases it might have for episode nine, Kirsty. Okay, so so this is from io9, and they've got the panels from like the last issue of the comic. Um, so Poe's kind of reflecting on where the resistance can go from here so obviously this is post The Last Jedi uh, where things were very dire for them and they still are to an extent because he wants to go and rescue Black Squadron because he doesn't know what happened to his friend Snap and Jessica Parva and everything like they were supposed to go away and find help during the events of The Last Jedi and that's why they weren't in it Um, and so this is kind of Poe right at the end reflecting on how 
It's not about Jedi or the best pilots in the galaxy winning against impossible odds. It's not about saving the galaxy. It's about saving your galaxy, the one within your reach. You choose right over wrong. When it's dark, you try to bring some light. And I just thought this was really interesting because that's significant character development for Poe from The Mm. Last Jedi. And that's kind of was something we've been talking about recently in some of our predictions for Nine, that we were going to see this kind of evolution from him. And now it's just really interesting to me because now he's had that moment of reflection and contemplation going forward in the comics. I'm interested to see if that will factor into Nine or if how this would work. Because, like, if Charles had, like, access to the Nine script, had understanding of what J.J. was going to do with Poe's arc... Um, or if we're going to kind of see like another iteration of this, what do you think? Because this yeah. is this seems like a very mature Poe to me. Yeah, no, it is. It's definitely someone who's learned his lessons, and it seems to me like quite a similar sentiment to what Rose says in the Last Jedi. You know, like the thing we've said a million times about saving what you love. Like it's very much about making personal choices for the right reasons and to achieve positive change and all that like Poe has become a much more mature and well-developed person here and I I do think that's what the end of The Last Jedi tells us it is just that The Last Jedi is a little bit more ambiguous because there are certain little details that people have commented on about how you know like how Poe says um and will burn the first order down like as opposed to um what Holdo says which is restore the republic so there's that contrast between building something new and destroying something but I think here in the comic that is Poe seems to be much more about being constructive and building something rather than being all burn it down so yeah like sorry I'm rambling a bit now but I I think it's certainly points to a more mature Poe and suggests that he's learned the lessons but I'm always sceptical about how much the comics actually feed into the films. So it wouldn't surprise me if Poe's characterization in episode nine doesn't completely cohere with this, you know. Mm. There's a bit after that where he's talking again about making that choice. When it's dark, you bring some light. He says, if everyone made that choice, well, I think everyone can. Maybe they just need to see how you do it. I think that's the fight. Mm. Which is also interesting to me. Because yeah. it's talking about... And again, this is very Star Wars, the idea that everyone has capacity to grow and to love and protect what they value. Yes. And be a good person. So everyone has that potential inside, but they need to be shown sometimes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I really like this version of Mature Poe. I'm just... I'm very intrigued to see what we'll see in Nine now and how how it'll line up with this, if at all. Yes. Because, really, The Last Jedi's Poe actually lined up pretty well with what they'd shown us in um, the comics before that. Yeah, Which were quite different true. from The Force Awakens Poe because he was more like... Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about how The Force Awakens Poe is almost perfect, right? Yeah. But the the comics went for this very, like hot-headed angry very argumentative with Leia combative but compelling and then so that's what leads me to believe that this will be informed partly by what they're doing with Nine because those comics seem to tie in very well with The Last Jedi's Poe 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think my only caution would be that because episode 8 was decided quite early in the development process, I think it would have been easier for that dialogue to be there between the comic producers and like what Ryan Johnson was doing. Whereas because obviously episode 9 was being written much closer to The Wire, I'm not sure there would have been that same level of like back and forth, or at least in the ability for the comics people to know what was going on in 9 and how to set up for that. But it's absolutely possible that they had notes and they were told, look, this is how we're going to start it. And we'd like something that... And we'd like an ending that sort of speaks to that. You know, I, I think that's completely possible and reasonable. Yeah. I think, again, it's because of the uncertainty around the timeline. Like, we don't have a sense of what kind of time jump we'll get. Yes. So if they go forward a year or two, it makes sense that in that time, Poe would have actually been able to sit down and think about, about what Holdo and Leia were trying to teach him. But right yeah. after The Last Jedi, it, he, he wasn't able to. He was still trying to save everyone. So Yeah. So yeah, I think now it's finished, I'm actually going to go and read the Poe Dameron comic. Yeah. No, it feels much more doable when you know there's like a specific endpoint, doesn't it? Yeah. And I just think it'll be interesting to kind of look back on those earlier versions as well. The final thing we want to talk about is that Jon Favreau's new TV show has started building its sets and is due to start filming next week, according to Making Star Wars, which is pretty astonishing. Um, Just so people have some background, Making Star Wars last month, I think, also had a story about the setting of this TV show. So I'll just read that out so people have some context. Sources believe Jon Favreau's Star Wars live-action series, which is set around three years after Return of the Jedi, is about the planet Mandalore. It sounds like when the Empire falls, Mandalore falls into a state of turmoil, and the series is about restoring Mandalore to its former self, and how the developments on Mandalore will have huge galactic ramifications. Yeah, so Kirsty, how familiar are you with Mandalore? Like, obviously you've watched The Clone Wars, haven't you? So you have more knowledge of it than I do. Yeah, it's just from the animation series. I don't know if there's extra stuff in like the EU about them. I'm, I guess there must be because of the whole Boba Fett thing. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in this because it sounds like the kind of political series that we were talking about last week with Suara. With yes, you know something that brings in that prequels political intrigue feel. Yeah, um, and a show that's probably more marketed towards adults. Yeah. Um, which so is yeah, exciting. it sounds intriguing to me. Like, what is the societal structure like on Mandalore? So I know literally nothing. So just talk to me about it. I no, but like this is the kind of thing that like someone could like. There are people out there who Mandalore is their main factor in like Star Wars enjoyment. Like there are people beyond hype that this is what they're getting. Yeah, because like in the Clone Wars, that's their thing. Like, is it a Sabine Satine? I guess I'm oh, yes. with those names. Yeah. But yeah, the woman who was like in love with Obi-Wan Kenobi, that mm. whole side of the Clone Wars is like their jam. Right. And like you yeah. get all those people who do like the cosplay for Mandalore and stuff, like the big armor and yeah. and it's just so, like I think it's okay, but I've got yeah. to admit that when I heard that this was like the the main aspect of that show, I was like, "Oh, okay." Right. Yeah. Do you know what so, I mean? So like I don't get it. Like it's not like a whole society where everyone wears that armor, is it? 
Uh, that's the battle armor that they wear, but obviously people don't just walk around like that in their <laughs> daily lives. Like some people will, okay. depending on what they do with their lives. Okay, right. <laughs> but like the character of Satine, mm-hmm. she she's wearing very ostentatious, like more like Padme, you know. Right. Okay, that makes sense. It's not like you have like little toddlers in their own little Boba Fett armor. <laughs> it's like, oh, look at babies. But Boba then, if you look at the character of Sabine, her armor is a very big part of her aesthetic and identity, right? Right, okay. So, um, so yeah. this is like quite a militaristic society, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, cool. So, so that's the sort of thing I was going for when I was talking about what's the society like and stuff. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the extent of it's what militaristic. I would take away from it. <laughs> but um, what I find most interesting, to be honest, is that this is set a few years after Return of the Jedi, so they can finally start filling in that 30-year gap um, mm. up until The Force Awakens. That for you know clear reasons they had to keep somewhat shrouded in mystery afterwards, but we're going to see the after effects of the Empire falling beyond yeah. just the personal story between Luke and Vader. It's like what did that mean for the rest of the galaxy? Yeah. So. Yeah. No. So I really hope that this series is not too firmly stuck on one planet. I don't think it will be, but like with all this talk about it being like Mandalore based, I'd like to see it go beyond that. And yeah, there be other facets to it because. It's a big galaxy, lots of different planets to explore. So, yeah. Yeah, but if but like it says, Mandalore falls into a state of turmoil, and if that has some really cool, exciting political intrigue and like thriller aspects going on, that could be really exciting. Yeah, no, definitely, and yeah, I'm excited for it. And even if it is all set on Mandalore, there's still potential for that to be enormously exciting. And hopefully, it would mean mostly new characters. Yes. Exactly, which is something we all, well, not that we all want, but I certainly want that, and I think you agree that it's a good idea. So, I mean, if they're starting to film this very, very soon, or they've already started filming, judging by the photos that Making Star Wars published this week, Mm. maybe we'll get some casting news relatively soon. Yeah, no, fingers crossed. Like, because I think that's when it becomes real. You know, we can put faces to the characters. Mm-hmm. That's much more exciting. Okay, with all the news out of the way, I think we can move on to our spotlight, which is on Solo. So, yeah, we have both We both now have the film. Like, we own it, which is exciting. I think I have it on Blu-ray, and Kirsty, you have it as a digital download, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, so we've both rewatched the film and I've watched like a good chunk of the extras. I haven't watched them exhaustively. Um, have you seen all of them, Kirsty? Yes, I made my way through all of them throughout this week. Very diligent. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but no, I very much enjoyed revisiting the film. Uh, yeah, so Kirsty, how about you? What are your impressions of Solo revisiting it about five months after it came out in theatres? It's kind of complicated because there are some things that I like more upon reflection and some things that have kind of solidified in my mind as like, yeah, I I didn't like that at first and I still don't really love it. Even if I've like heard the creator's explanations for why they chose to do certain things. Yeah. Um, And other things actually, like I, I just don't like as much or they're like coming out as more obvious issues with some of the storytelling that I yeah. just kind of glossed over on the first couple of viewings. You know when you're in the cinema and you're watching something 
it's just you're you're just taking it at face value and sometimes like characters are making speeches and you're not really listening to the substance of it or the implications for the story yeah so one example is when emphis nest is talking about the history of crimson dawn the crime syndicate being responsible for all of this turmoil that's happening and it's like of course it would be them because they're criminals and Shock. they're the they're the people that Hannah's been working with all this time. I, I it I can't even talk about it without getting confused because it seems such a odd reveal to me. Yeah. Do you know do you know what I mean? Like and I, I was tweet tweeting about it the other day and and someone was like, Oh, it's not really supposed to be a reveal for us, it's a reveal for Han, which kind of exposes his naivety and it also has implications for Kira's character because these are the people that she's been working with all this time, so you really get a sense for how deep in it she is. But yeah. that's all stuff that we knew. So I it still falls a little flat to me. Yeah. I really like yeah. Emphis as a character, but a lot of that um exposition from her, I'm just not quite sure what its purpose is. Yeah. Like I found that actually when I was revisiting it because I did enjoy going back to the film, but it's very much a type of film that you revisit it and you're really conscious of how much of it is explanation like explanation upon explanation upon explanation <laughs> and it becomes a little bit tiresome <laughs> to be honest at certain points and yeah like there's also a question of like how well it works dramatically because you're right the idea of that reveal and like yeah you can technically explain that as well Han didn't know that but that doesn't really like make it that much better <laughs> you know like because there's like a limit to how much you can say about oh it's only meant to operate in this way as so i think you also need to look at it for how effective is it for the audience like another example i think of is when it turns out that beckett betrayed han at the end i know like that <laughs> Who else is... would it have been exactly it's so blatantly obvious that that's going to happen but the way the music's used and the way the characters respond and the way it's all framed, you kind of get the impression that you're meant to be like, whoa, what a huge shocking reveal. And it just makes you think, well, it made me think, like, God, did the filmmakers think I'm stupid? Like, like because you just feel a bit patronised, you know? So it's like, well, obviously it was going to be Beckett. Come on. Mm. The other thing, sorry to bring it back to Enfys again, but the whole idea that it's somehow a reveal that under the mask there's this amazing, strong, intelligent, beautiful young woman. Yeah. It's like, well, why not? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, it, and depending on my mood, I can find that quite endearing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you really thought that that was going to be like this amazing, subversive thing. But it's 2018. I actually don't find that very subversive, especially with Star Wars. Come on. Yeah, have these amazing female characters. Um, it's not like you know Padme was running a, a whole planet when she was fourteen. Yeah, look at Leia. I mean, it's I don't know. So it's the kind of story that I'm finding. I can I can watch it and repeat repeat viewings do have value because it's yes. still entertaining in its own way. Like there are parts of it that are just really fun to watch and the performances are fantastic. But I'm almost. Uh, becoming increasingly unwilling to like look too closely at the mechanics of the story yeah because things 
start to crumble for me a little bit and I don't want that to happen. Yeah. No, it's like it is still a fun film and I don't think that goes away upon a rewatch, but a rewatch definitely does like make you like question the soundness of the narrative construction, shall we say? <laughs> Which I feel like is a bit of a euphemism, but yeah, it's just how it is. Like you look at it and you're a bit like mm. it's just a bit creaky. And yeah, it just fills me like with this fresh like amazement that before the film came out, people were saying, oh, it's the best Star Wars script I've ever written. And it's like, what? <laughs> oh, who said that again? Oh, I, I'm trying to remember. It was, um, I think it was maybe one of the concept artists. Huh. Um, yeah, it was one of the concept artists. He worked on the prequels and the sequel trilogy. And he said he'd got hold of the script somehow and he was really impressed and everything. And... Yeah, like so I really doubt the script changed that much because obviously the whole premise of getting rid of Lord and Miller was that they weren't following the script. So I don't think it's a case of oh there was this brilliant script, but it just never it was never realised because we we know that ultimately the script writers of Solo had the greatest power as the creative forces behind it um, because they certainly superseded the directors. But yeah, it doesn't change. Yeah, it's interesting to me because, I mean, you know, from the start, it made sense for Lawrence Kasdan to be writing Han Solo. Yeah. Because everyone always says he's the he's the person who understands that character better than anyone. And I do think they did a good job with Han as a character. It's just the actual story. Yes. Um, just falls a little flat. Yeah. But, I, but that's on repeat viewings for me. So I'm just not sure about it in terms of like staying power. And mm. where I would fit it into the saga, in terms of yeah. like one, you know whether it's one of my favorite movies or not, um, I, yeah, I think it's just how much it adds to my understanding of Han because everything's pretty much in line with what I already felt like I knew about Han. There's not, yes. there's not a, it's it's not groundbreaking to me. Yeah. Well, I think that's another issue of it. And I, and I feel bad to just go on about the issues. We'll talk about the things we really liked and that we appreciated more upon revisiting it in a minute. Um, but yeah, like you really do feel that like the Kasdans felt like there was this need to go back and like, add background to certain things in the original trilogy and to like give that greater context and to fill in the gaps to a certain extent. Like the whole thing with L3 becoming part of the Falcon and then like how that ties into the moment in Empire Strikes Back where, um, is it C-3PO comments on the ship having a personality and being a bit awkward and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, like that sort of thing. That's the sort of thing where you did not need to explain that as, well, it has this developed robot consciousness inside it, you know, but you can tell that's probably how they were working. And I think especially John Kasdan, because he is such a Star Wars nerd, I think there was a certain degree of backward engineering going on. And I don't think that's the best way to construct a film. Yeah, from the special features, my favourite part of those were the kind of discussions between Lawrence and John Kasdan about how mm. they work together and how sometimes they actually struggle to work together. Right, um, yeah. Because for Lawrence Kasdan, the, the focus was very clearly from the beginning, Han Solo. He loves yeah. that character. He's always talked about how much he loves that character and why he f- just fits into this cinematic history of that archetype for him, who he's always found appealing, you know, because they show these excerpts from his 1993 interview where he's talking about 
There are no simple heroes and villains for me. I'm interested in how you can act very well in one day and very badly the next. So the Han Solo is his guy. Um, And for his son, it's more about the Star Wars world in general, it seems like. He's very invested in the lore and those background details that wouldn't really concern Lawrence Kasdan. Yes. Um, and you know when when you're looking at like how Lawrence Kasdan and George Lucas would talk about Star Wars, it's in very broad strokes about the broad themes and the archetypes of the characters and what they're supposed to teach the people watching the movies. Whereas for for some fans and some people like John Kasdan, it would be those details that are key. Yeah. So it's it's good in a way that they work together to flesh out the story because then you have these very different perspectives. Yeah. Um, but I know what side of it is more appealing for me. Yeah. And I think the the where the film, not fails, but has its shortcomings for me personally, is those aspects that just don't... They fill things into an unnecessary degree almost. Yeah. Like the whole thermal detonator thing. It's like, I don't need to know that that heroic moment for Leia in the original trilogy, she actually just heard a story about Han and yeah. got that idea from him. Yeah, that because that to me has a knock-on effect for Leia. Yeah, and I know exactly. a lot of people. I love Kira and Han. That's a real strong point for the movie for me, and I know you feel the same way. But for some people, they actually really don't like the way that Kira and Han has a knock-on effect for his relationship with Han and Leia. So yeah, it's it's complicated, and everyone will feel differently. Exactly. Yeah. No, like it, it's such a tricky thing. But yeah, like I think those notes that John Kasdan released on Twitter didn't help matters, especially when it came to that sort of thing, because it really did reinforce that that seemed to be the approach in a lot of the time, with the idea being that like, oh, there's this intriguing little moment in the originals. How can we riff off that? Or how can we feed into that in this new story? And I, I understand the temptation to do that, but I still think that was an impulse that should have been restrained rather than indulged. Yeah, it's something that just seems um, fundamental to the enjoyment of Star Wars for a lot of fans, and now I've realised some of its creators. And Mm. that's just not why I watch movies. Yeah, That's not why I would be invested in learning more about a character or a particular event in time so that I can fit it into these other movies that I also enjoy. Like, that's not the appeal for me. Yeah. Yeah. it again comes back to this conversation we were having earlier about like Bob Iger and reflecting on how these new films are going to fit in with the older ones and whether they even should or whether they should just happen to be set in the same galaxy but in totally different timelines, totally new characters. You're not filling in this minutiae. Um, and mm. I think that they will start to do that over time. It's just um, fundamentally, I think these films or at least those aspects of it that we're talking about the aspects that we have issue with are written for different kinds of star wars fans than us yeah um no that's true love han loved kira loved beckett and val i loved lando so all of the the broad things you know watching these characters was cool i thought the performances were fantastic um it's just all of these extra little things that actually end up weighing down the story and give it this almost like sense of obligation that they have to get to this bit and then they have to go to this bit and then they have to see this and we have to get a reference to that it's like actually i think it might have been better if you hadn't done those things yeah 
no exactly um because yeah i think stories like for, for me they need to be about something bigger and when it is inherently about the minutiae on some level th- then i think that's when it falls apart because to talk about positive solo is most effective for me when it is talking about something deeper and bigger than those like little trivia moments basically um which is like the stuff of the han and kira relationship I think they could have done so much more with that, but I do think that what is included is really good because you really buy the chemistry between those characters and you really feel that pain when they're separated at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way that relationship was used and developed, the idea of these people who cared for each other so strongly, but then because they were separated at that crucial point and they both went on very different paths in their lives and they can't let them and Kira can't let them be together like that's a really interesting premise for a story because she's the one with all the control in that relationship basically which I really like and she's the one like calling the shots and saying look I can't be with you despite herself because a part of her really wants to be with him but she's actually doing something quite noble by refusing to give in to that desire because she's protecting him by doing that it's a fascinating and, mix isn't yeah. it because they intentionally leave it amb- ambiguous so it's like is she protecting him is she looking out for herself what's going to go mm. on with her and Maul now like yeah it's like oh my god this is stuff is fascinating and it doesn't seem to be the focus yeah and that's kind of the impression i got from the special features as well i was like looking for something that would really delve into the the history of han and kira's relationship how that would have an impact on his relationship with leia when he meets her i can't find a single reference to leia yeah you know, all of this stuff for me is very entwined that that those relationships are actually the core of my star wars enjoyment yeah but it's it doesn't seem to be all of the features i enjoyed watching them but it was very much about like oh here's how we did the train heist here's yeah. how we did this action sequence um i found the, the stuff about the chasms really interesting and i really enjoyed watching um phoebe waller bridge walking around in her l3 suit <laughs> yeah because that was a lot more of a a straight up portrayal of the character than i realized looking at her yeah. with like that green suit on i was like oh it basically was her you know yeah no, rewatching it with that behind the scenes footage on in mind, it really did make me admire it more because the way you see her walk, you know, that really is like performance. It's not yeah. something that's done in CGI. She was actually moving like that on the set, and it's quite impressive. Exactly. It it oddly reminded me a bit of the Kylo Ren body language, <laughs> you know, just like that lurching gait. <laughs> right. Great. Yeah. No, I understand. I think she said at one point they made her wear heels so that <laughs> she would be in that right... You know, compared to someone like Lando. Right, It's a very yeah. contrasting physicality next to him where she's, like, marching off because she's upset with him in that moment. It it really is so human. Yeah. No, it's very impressive. And, um... Yeah, like, I just quickly to return to the Kira and Han stuff, I really think that there could be a fascinating sequel to Solo if it were much more character-based and focused on that dynamic and what would happen in another encounter when Kira has climbed a few more rungs of the ladder, mm. you know, and, like, risen in everyone's estimations. Like, and you'd see, like, oh, was she more corrupt than she was before? Like, what happened to that? 
good part of her that wanted to protect and help Han? Is that even still there? That sort of thing. Yeah, well, in one of the notes that John Caston posted on Twitter, he said that their story wasn't finished. Mm. So the idea is that eventually they would somehow meet up again. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me again, because so you've got Kira going off to find Maul. She's got this whole, like, almost double life thing going on. Han yeah. has no awareness of that. He doesn't even know who Maul is, because when we meet him in The New Hope, he doesn't even seem to be aware of the Force as a real thing. Yeah. And he's incredibly sceptical about it. So does he know who Maul is at that point? Has he met him? Like, I'm just, I'm kind of sad that we won't, we probably won't get that next chapter now, at least in movie form, because of how this movie did. When you think about it, it's a strange choice to position your character in that way. Like when you have explicitly confirmed in the previous films that they have no awareness of that like force using world because in a way like almost sets up like quite a comedic dynamic you know where like if like Kira and Han were to cross paths again you'd always have to have these situations where like Han was just narrowly missing something like supernatural or something to do with the force (gasps) okay that reminds me of in the Clone Wars when Dave Filoni couldn't have Anakin ever meet Grievous because when he meets him in Revenge of the Sith, it's like, oh, you're taller than I expected. <laughs> so you have to constantly contrive these ridiculous situations where they don't meet because canon later on is like, well, they, ha- they haven't met yet. So, <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> oh, Lord. So, yeah, like I-, I would be fascinated to see how they would tackle that. Because, yeah, yeah w- whether or not more was around when they reunited, you'd still have this whole thing that Kira had gone off and had this amazing surreal thing going on with mm. this former Sith dude. Yeah. With, you know, <laughs> just, I-, I don't know. I do love the end of Solo, I've got to say. Like, it's just so batshit. <laughs> you mean with Maul? Yeah. Yeah, and it just, really is. I... I it really, really drives home for me how naive Han was right up until the end, like, you know, like, killing Beckett. But before that, it's like, he really does think that him and Kira are going to run off and be together forever. Yeah. So your heart breaks for him when he gets into the elevator and she's t- telling him about how she would always smile and she's right behind him. It's like, dude. <laughs> Read the room. <laughs> oh, my God. Poor yeah. Han. And you get that bit in last shot where he's like heartbroken and Chewie's trying to console him. Yeah. It's the sort of film where you really do need more material to like fill those gaps. Because yeah, otherwise he just seems so staggeringly naive. There's like, how is this even the same person? And it's ironic because in so many ways they like go to this like torturous degree of like um, fidelity to the original films in terms of making it similar and making it evoke what was going on there with the characters and everything. But in terms of going from like super innocent, naive, wide-eyed Han in Solo to like cynical and bitter Han in A New Hope, that, that's quite a gulf, you know, and I don't feel like he really comes close to making that transition just in Solo. So it was obviously written with sequels in mind. Yeah, exactly. I think right at the end when he kills Beckett, that's him sort of turning into that older cynical figure but it's the it's right at the beginning of that 
right? It's like, yeah. this is who he's going to be, but we're not actually going to show you that here because presumably you're going to get more stories with Bolden as Han. Yeah. Um, and now we're not sure if that's going to happen. So it, it leaves you in kind of like this weird lurch where you're half hoping for more stories and half like, oh, I can see why that didn't quite work. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... I think the fandom still doesn't quite know what to make of it. And it's perfectly possible to enjoy it on its own terms. And I, I do. Um, yeah. But if we're really, you know, because we're, we have this podcast, and we're kind of like tearing things apart. It's like, oh, that actually doesn't work as well as I f- first thought it had. Or, mm. oh, I guess they can. I can see why they're setting this up for a potential sequel. But because we're not going to get that now, or we're probably not going to get it, how do we feel about it in this context? Yeah. So... It's a bit of an odd duck, isn't it, really? Yeah. I hope we're not upsetting people who really, really love Solo, because I know we have some yeah. listeners who do, and I think yeah. that's fantastic, and I enjoy it, and like, like I said, like I think there are so many things to love about it, but it's yeah. just in this kind of odd limbo, where yeah. it's almost like it was potentially its whole a whole new side of the saga was being set up here, and they yeah. had to do a lot of this, or they felt they had to, a lot of this establishing with the first chapter, and then yeah. and then what's next? Yeah. Anything. So it's sort of like if you only had like just forgetting the books for a minute. If you only had um, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the first film, mm. you know, like at that point you get like the barest foundations of the story, and you get the characters at a very early point in their journeys. But then, like, if you just see that have that in isolation, rather than that film as the first step in this seven-part series. You have such a radically different understanding of the story that's being told mm-hmm. that is just a completely different thing. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. It's all about that context. But yeah, like, I don't think we're trashing it. Like, and, I, and like you, I enjoy it. And I do think it's a decent film. Like, I, I don't love it and I won't say I do. But that's not to diminish anyone else's enjoyment of it. And I think it had lots of really great elements even at the same time as there were things that maybe frustrated me a little. Yeah. I mean, I think a real strength of the movie is the Beckett and Han relationship, to be honest. And I think that's what Lawrence Kasdan and his son really brought to it in terms of their strength working together. Yeah. Um, that father and son dynamic. And it had me thinking a lot, again, about the father and son scene in The Force Awakens between Kylo yeah. and Han, because they wrote that together too. Yeah. And Lawrence Kasdan has said over and over that he feels that this saga is about father and son and that intergenerational conflict um, mm. and how their dynamic as they were writing the story kind of embodied that too with some element of creative tension. Yeah. So that to me is super interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. Because, yeah, like I think it, like Star Wars is such like a heightened version of all these actual dynamics that we can all relate to. Even go back to the original trilogy, it's like my dad is the Dark Lord of the galaxy. Like that in itself is not a realistic scenario. But the idea of having a father that you never knew and having that father that you never knew turn out to be someone who horrifies you and who you instinctively reject. And then you have to go on this journey to actually accept them and want to help them talking about it in those terms suddenly it becomes something that you can understand on a very human grounded level you know and I think that that's the sort of thing that the Kasdans probably wanted to bring to the dynamics they were writing whether it was Han and Kylo or Han and Beckett 
Exactly. I mean, the, Ron Howard is talking in the special features um, about that, and he says, I think John feels a lot of the pressure and drive to define himself, and we really made the story connect as young, kind of rebellious guy struggling to define himself. Now, certainly Larry can understand that too and be interested in that, but a lot of it comes from John. Mm. And I just think you can see a lot of that in the story, and that's really what I value. I just yeah. wish we'd got more of that in terms of okay, well, how do you feel about Han and Kira? Like, what role does yeah. she serve in, in contrast to his relationships later in life? Yeah. So I do think she was clearly quite a carefully crafted character. She wasn't, like, a throwaway character at all. And they obviously had plans for her. Like, I almost wonder if the reason why they don't go into that is because there are plans to, like, at least do, like, books or comics or something, and they just don't want to go there. But you'd still think they could at least talk about the inception of the character and what the thinking was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's been concept art of, you know, how they'd originally conceived of Kira as potentially like an alien creature. Mm. So she wouldn't have been human, but she'd have been humanoid and still presumably like have this romantic element with Han. And yeah. to some extent, this weird quasi-sexual, I don't know how to describe it weird dynamic with Voss. into your sh- shipping. Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking about Maul. <laughs> no, no, no. No. Voss, I mean. Like, just okay, the way Voss, he yeah. has this sense of ownership around her and, like, how he's kind of playing these games with her when he sends him off to work with them. But yeah. it's threatening her, too. So... Yeah, so I thought we could probably have a little chat about the deleted scenes before wrapping things up. Um, so, yeah, which one of all the deleted scenes stood out to you the most? Which one did you enjoy? And would have liked to have seen included in the movie in an ideal world. Um, I actually really liked the one with Han and Kira where they hid in the eel bucket. Same, same. That would be my choice. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, it was just really sweet, and I'm always here for more of those romantic interactions. And it was just very charming and yeah. a good way of quickly setting. I-, I love their relationship at the beginning of the movie before they get separated. So it would have just been cool to see more of that. I understand why it's not there. They have to keep it fast paced and everything. But yeah. I was surprised by how well it worked as a scene. Yeah, exactly. And it was just like a delightful little touch. Like it wasn't crucial to the character development or anything, but it really did make you buy into that relationship and how much they care about each other and how they feel about each other. And there's that wonderful little allusion to, like, a thigh contact moment. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, did you just squeeze my thigh? <laughs> no. <laughs> Foreshadowing! <laughs> yes, exactly. It's poetry, it rhymes. Yeah. It's, my it's least favourite deleted scene, and I was not expecting it to be, because I hadn't thought about it enough, so, okay, I had heard and seen gifts of Han and Chewie having the snowball fight, and I was like, oh, that's really cute, you know? more honey yes. chewy sweetness but then when i was actually watching the deleted scene i was like wait a minute is this supposed to be just after val and rio died <laughs> that I, seems I, wrong i did watch it and i was like what even is this jesus <laughs> like that that's like a case where you watch it and you're really glad it was cut yeah the tone would have been super jarring and almost disrespectful considering what Beckett is going through at that time yeah he just found out the love of his life has died and he feels partly responsible and now he's got to go and find this boss character who he's indebted to and then Han and Chewie are just having this silly snowball fight I was like Han yeah. <laughs> come on uh, and it's just way too childish basically <laughs> yeah 
I was watching the the special features where they actually like went to the location and people were like having fun in the snow and everything and I was like maybe they just started doing that and then thought they could use it as footage mm. do you think yeah you maybe out how like whether it had actually been part of the original script yeah maybe it was like one of the improvisational things that Lord and Miller did Right, exactly. That's how it seemed to me, because just watching the whole scene play out seemed really awkward. Yeah. If it was one of the things that Lord and Miller did, thank God it was cut. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) It's just like, why? Why, God, why? Yeah. Um, Other than that, there were just some extra character details that I would have liked to have seen in the movie, but ultimately it doesn't change too much. Like um, when... Han gets to Voss's yacht and he's eating some food and like gets the noodles on his shirt and stuff. Yeah. Do you remember that one? That was cute. Yeah, yeah I do that, remember that one. Yeah. That that was one of the more charming ones. I quite liked that, especially the way Kira kept on looking at him like, oh god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was very relatable. And it just it kind of reminded me of Ray's mess eating in The Force Awakens, and I love Ray and Han parallels, so Yeah, same. So I think the stuff that people sometimes mistake for like a familial relationship is, is like no, it's like they're similar types of people with quite similar backgrounds, and that when Han looks mm-hmm. at her like he does in The Force Awakens, is more thinking back to his own childhood and being able to empathise with her on those terms. Mm-hmm. I would actually love to see the Kasdans talk about that a bit more, in terms of look, what about these parallels between Han and Rey? in terms of both coming from these very like scrappy like backgrounds like was there like any conscious like parallel what did you consciously parallel what was going on with Han in his early years when you were writing Rey and how Han interacted with her in The Force Awakens although I guess that's the sort of conversation they might not be able to have well yeah because then you've got the contrast um in their relationships with like Ben and Leia right who you mm. can argue come from quite privileged backgrounds. And yeah. I think Adam Driver's spoken before about how Kylo is pretty conscious of his privilege and the fact that he's perceived as royalty. Yeah. So, so yeah, that would be interesting. But again, it's the kind of thing that they might not spell out until after episode nine. Yeah. God, I could not give enough money for like a tell-all book that goes into detail about all of these things in terms of the crafting of the sequel trilogy, I would love it so much. Yeah, well, that's the kind of thing that I'm curious as to whether we'd get any more from Kasdan because he he was only involved in The Force Awakens. So he's like Mm. very important to the formation of these characters, but maybe we would never hear from him in terms of what he thought of the resolution or how much he'd actually set up with JJ from the beginning. Yeah. It's kind of a shame. Um, oh yeah and another deleted scene I really liked was the one where we see a little bit of Han's career as an Imperial pilot I quite liked that one Mm. and the court martial Um, I think the performance of the guy who was court martialing him and the lines he was given to be fair I don't think it was really the actor's fault I think that was all a bit broad (laughs) but I did still like it and I appreciated seeing how his experience was before he was kicked out I think that would have added something yeah it's one of these things that again i get why they cut it to like streamline things a little bit but it's a bit jarring that we go from him you know getting the name solo and signing up and then all of a sudden he's already been kicked out yeah (laughs) and he's talking about how he had a mind of his own it's like okay i can totally see that in you as a character but it's odd that they just kind of glossed over that 
Yeah. And again, it's a question being told but not shown. And that deleted right. scene showed it. I also like the way that deleted scene ends where it's like the guy saying, um, oh, we'll have you flying in no time. <laughs> well, so they they do that in the actual movie, but it's a different guy saying it, right? It's the one who's who gave him the name. Right, so they, okay. So they just, yeah. they streamline it a little bit more. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, I, think, I just think that the guy's delivery maybe struck me a bit more. So I didn't even really notice that as a transition when watching the film proper. But I'm sure that yeah. happens. Yeah, it's a very good transition, and I appreciate the joke, but yeah, it's it's just a bit odd considering it's like they're talking about him at the academy, and then we don't actually end up seeing it because it's cool yeah. to see him like in the helmet actually being an imperial pilot. That's really cool yeah. to see him doing that. Definitely, it's like whoa, this is wild. Um, I I was also so glad they cut down the Han and Chewie fight. Like in the deleted scene, it just was endless. I was like, God, bring me death. <laughs> you know what it's not as bad as what? Canto Bite yeah that's true oh man oh, I actually find it <laughs> funny how long that deleted scene is it's just like it's one of these things where he probably knew that he wasn't going to be able to include all of these things but they got carried away with like the world building on Canto Bite and they were like we can have a sauna we can have a cake shop <laughs> Like we can have all of these things Yeah, and it's just endless them going through Canto Bite is amazing yeah no i think that's very much what went on (laughs) so yeah i always enjoy seeing deleted scenes but it's kind of fascinating that there's this mix of like oh i really wish they kept that in and oh i completely get why that's gone yeah exactly it makes complete sense oh the other thing i wanted to mention was there wasn't an awful lot of bradford young Mm -hmm. um but there was a little bit about um how all of the sets were properly lit as if they were real places and that's right, yeah. part of why the film looks kind of dark to your eyes at first. Yeah. Um, because it really fits in with what, you know, the seedy atmosphere that they're going for. But it also really helps the actors that when they're on these sets filming, it's just like they're sat somewhere real. You know, the lighting is actually as if it would be there in a real place. Like, I think yeah. that's really awesome. Yeah, no, that's true. Like, it's a very unique aesthetic. Um. Like, I'm still not sure it works particularly well for the film. I, I do think it's very artistically shot, but it's like you get scenes where Han is seeing the Millennium Falcon for the first time. And obviously it's meant to be just this awe-inspiring moment where he's seeing how like beautiful and stunning the ship is. But because of the quality of the visuals in that scene, it's just all brown and murky. <laughs> and of course, that's the nature of the planet they're on as well. So there's limits to what you can do in terms of showcasing that but it just seemed like odd choices were made in my opinion yeah it really sets it apart from like the amazing color of the last jedi right the, yeah the, the use of color in that movie is so symbolic whereas bradford young was clearly going for something that was quite realistic yeah definitely yeah like and i think that's maybe part of why it jarred with me yeah, so all in all, like I, I do think it's worth getting solo on Blu-ray. I, I certainly enjoyed watching it again. And the special features were fun, even though they're not like super intense. You don't get anything equivalent to the documentary on The Last Jedi, for example. Yeah, you know what? I would have actually really liked a special feature aspect on John Powell and the soundtrack. Mm, because the yeah. soundtrack's one of my favourite things about this movie. Yes. And um, yeah. it's not really touched upon that much. Yeah, and and really there beautiful. was nothing about Erin Kellyman. Yeah, no, you're right. Which is a real missed opportunity because she was like a bit of a breakout, wasn't she? 
Yeah. So they've done very little publicity around her because obviously they were kind of keeping her real identity under wraps before the movie. But then after, I kind of hoped that we'd see more of her in stuff like the special features. Yeah. What wasn't to be. No, it's a pity. Yeah, like, so I definitely enjoy the film. Like, even all the qualifications we have given in this episode aside it's still a fun time and it's absolutely a Star Wars movie and you never forget that um do you have any final words to say about the film Kirsty um just that I'm probably gonna watch it again soon and Mm -hmm. I'm still making my way through the novelization which is adding a lot of great stuff about a lot of the female characters oh I bet Val Val and Beckett's relationship Enfys so um I have high hopes for that in terms of how it's gonna um like bolster these aspects of the movie that I just wanted more of because they were things I really loved. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we'll come back to that soon. Do you have plans to read the novelization? I'd like to say yes, but I don't want to commit to it right now. Let's see how I get on with Lost Stars and then maybe we can consider that as the next challenge for me. Okay. You could also try an audiobook. Yes, no, I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, so many options in this modern world. <laughs> I know. What is we were this? talking earlier about how we just kind of get overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that we're meant to, well, not meant to, but we put on ourselves. It's like, oh, I really want to watch this show and I want to read this book. And it's just like there's endless amounts of entertainment. It's, it can be overwhelming. Yeah, exactly. You also have to live your life. <laughs> yeah, no, we need to make space for non-Star stuff just sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right with that said I think that brings us to the end of this episode Um, yeah so we hope you enjoyed listening to our little return to solo and we hope that you will join us again next time in the meantime you can find me Rachel at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress where can people find you Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter thank you so much for listening and until next time Bye. Bye.